Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to this edition of The High Strangeness Factor, copyrighted on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. I am your host, Steve Ward, and with me is Andy Mercer. And I am happy to say that the two of us are, are back on The High Strangeness Factor and the UK Paranormal Radio Network after a long hiatus. Andy, welcome back. We are back indeed, yes. Um, I, as you know, I've been sort of skipping all over the place. I helped out temporarily on the Paranormal Radio show, the main flagship show, as Arian always likes to call it. Covered that for a little while, first Arian and I, while Mark was had other things to sort out and was running his own little show. Then Arian dropped out for a while, so it was just myself and Kerry who sort of stepped into the into the breach, as it were. But they've taken it back. We've been ceremoniously fired, Kerry and I have been kicked out and removed. I understand that the uh, the ratings, the uh, the downloads are doing pretty well for uh, the Par- UK Paranormal Radio Network. Yeah, they've gone up massively, <laughs> especially the last three months. It went up hugely, thanks to me, but now you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I noticed they went up after I went on hiatus, but I'm not going to oh, no, dwell no, on that. So no, you, you were missed, Dave. You were missed absolutely. But um, no, it's been an interesting kind of reshuffling in various places because obviously Kerry used to do a show with her friend Paul Rook and um, Richard Clements. They did the Paranormal Concept show, which then also took a break for a while, and that is now also on its way back um, this month. 
they have returned to, to, with the two of them now. But um, let's just take a bit of a, a step to one side. He's still around, but he's not going not to be a regular on there anymore as he was before. So, and say, Irene and Mark have now taken back their show, which they're doing twice a month now, bi-weekly. So, they seem pretty happy to be up and running. And I mean, it, it's not a secret. It's been mentioned on other shows before. Unfortunately, Mark suffered a personal tragedy with his wife. Um, right. Passed away completely out of the blue, which um, obviously he's been dealing with. But I think for him, it's probably helpful to have something to focus on. I mean, for my professional position, you know, I'm a psychotherapist. I, I know that having something to to do to occupy one's mind is always helpful for difficult times like this. So it's good for him to get on back on the horse, as it were, and, and get back out there. But he's very keen to, um, he's happy to talk about this, is why I mentioned it, because he's mentioned it in his own shows. He's quite happy to talk. So that's good for him. So they're back up and running. We've got a couple of new shows have come on board, which I am sort of helping out with as well. So, so it's been quite a busy time, but. Yeah, it's been interesting to be on the radio more than I had been for quite a while. I was mainly in the background of other things, but my life too is changing, as um, as you probably already know. I'm um, moving away from the psychotherapeutic world and I'm going into kind of semi-retirement out of that and putting my um, long-term planned project of publishing is actually starting to happen, which I am so pleased about. So I'm finally moving out of the world of therapy and moving into the world of publishing, which has been an aim and plan for a few years now, but I never quite found the right moment or found the right way of doing things. But it's all coming together very strangely well, almost worryingly well. I've got five authors, including myself, of course, but five authors signed up who will be publishing their, their works over the coming year or so. So it's all moving forward nicely. They're all good people. They've all been published before. One of them is very well known indeed, although I can't say who it is at the moment. In the field of the occult, is very well known, which is very helpful. It'll give me a real boost to get this moving forward. But yes, yeah, so things are looking good here. I'm quite happy. So the reason I mentioned that, of course, is I'm going to be able to do a lot more shows regularly with you now. So we've I've been the occasional co-host for the last sort of few years, but I'm intending to be around more often. Um, hopefully, most shows I expect I should be able to do because I've got more. My diary is freer. I'm more able to move things around to do stuff. I'm not so caught up as I used to be, which is always very helpful. So, well, well that sounds good. Now, can you uh, give us uh, any hints at all as to what, uh, even even very generally, as to what kinds of uh, books you will be publishing and some of the other authors, just uh, without, of course, revealing any secrets? Sure, I certainly can. The publishing company I've set up is called the Ninth Circle Press. We are publishing, oh, I keep saying we, it always sounds grand to say we, but it's just me, <laughs> basically, at the moment. Um, Mandy, my wife, helps out a little bit, but generally it's just me. Um, but it's esoteric and occult titles. It, we're kind of aiming for the, the best way to put this, it's more the kind of semi kind of scholastic approach it's going to be this proper research proper information historic stuff but also very practical so there's if you're into sort of ceremonial magic there's stuff that you can do with all the texts that are coming out there is a practical element to all of them but it's it's looking at topics like um witchcraft and magic of course i am my current book i'm working on at the moment which should be the first title is all about the dark side of the kabbalah if people know about the the hebrew kabbalah is a sort oh, yes. of yes and magic well it has a dark side a dark alternative called the Clip-Off. And there's also a thing called the Citra Acra, which is an, another version of sort of the dark side, if you like. It sounds very Star Wars, a dark side, doesn't it? But it's the, the <laughs> negative side. I mean, they call it the other side of holiness. It's literally the other side. Most of the books, in fact, all the books who've written about these two topics write about them as if they're the same topic, the Clip-Off and the Citra Acra. It's for the same thing. But my research has shown 
I think conclusively they're not the same thing. So it's going to be quite, um, it might raise a few eyebrows in the occult community because it is suggesting there has been some conflation of topics, shall we say, things being brought together don't belong together. So that's going to be quite interesting to see what kind of reception that gets. Um, the second book I can't say anything about because, as I say, he's a well-known writer and he's, he's um, working with me on this, but on the understanding that it'll be announced when it's announced. I've got a contract signed, everything, so he's definitely in place. But if you're in the world of the occult and writing, you will know this guy's work. He's quite what you see, he's very well known. Um, another one is something I've got to know quite well. He's writing about aspects of witchcraft. And another one is a book that actually came out about four or five years ago. He did it self-published, only 100 copies, which they sold out really well. But I can see a lot more potential in the book itself because it was, you know, it was done sort of on the cheap, shall we say. I can see a lot more quality and more, more um, possibilities with it. And I haven't spoken to the guy at length about the book. He's written a new version, which is more than twice the length of the original, which is pretty good guy. So that's going to be interesting. And... Um, Another one I've got coming on board is a, a good friend of mine. He's also um, been published before. I'm not mentioning names because, as I say, it's all contract-based and it's not announced yet. But, again, he's writing about an area of witchcraft that he knows incredibly well. And, again, some new stuff that hasn't really seen the light of day before. But, again, it's good, solid research for stuff. It, in the occult world, you get what we call personal gnosis, which is like your own personal magical experiences. That is good stuff. People like that sort of thing, but it's not historically based or it might be loosely based on something else but the stuff i want to produce has got historic merit as well he's linked to traditions that exist that are known to be i've been around for a time and it's working within certain genres it's i'm often asked this question of what kind of books are you looking for and it's difficult to say it's easy to say what i don't want or what i do want you know on the opposite ends of the scale i don't really think sort of too new age you're wicker again nothing wrong with that kind of stuff but it's not what i want to publish and also i don't want to publish any too dark satanic sinister sort of black magic evil type stuff again i've no problem with that sort of stuff but it's not the year i want to go into so i'm kind of in the middle it's sort of semi-academic semi-scholastic but a lot of practical experience as well a lot of practical stuff going on with it so that's the what I've got with them so far. I'm also working on some reproductions of old manuscripts that are handwritten, um, what are called grimoires of magic, that you can find in um, certain libraries and collections which are freely available. In fact, you can some of these you can print off yourself and just publish yourself and get money from the publication. It's actually perfectly legal and fine to do that. But I'm transcribing them into much more readable English, so you'll get like a parallel text of the original image and then the modern, re, rewritten, easy-to-read versions side-by-side. Side. There's only one other publisher who's done anything like that, and they've sold really well. And why they've stopped, I have no idea, but they have stopped doing it. But that's something else. It's more of a long-term project as part of this publishing plan that I'm going to be doing as well. So it's going to keep me busy. But as I say, winding down the therapy work, I'm seeing fewer clients. So I'll probably still have a couple that will stay with me that I'm helping through difficult times. But generally speaking, I am... Not many of leisure as such, because there's a lot quite involved and a lot of work involved, particularly doing the proofreading and working through. I mean, I'm reworking my own book at the moment for about the fifth time, <laughs> trying to make sure everything, <laughs> any problems are ironed out. And it does take quite a while. So along with that, I'm also building the website as well and starting to get that ready to be officially launched. If you like. It's visible. You can find it, but I've not really done any advertising for it yet. That all comes about probably later this month or early next month. Because I think the big thing is, we're moving. We're moving to another part of the country. Oh, um, boy. <laughs> yes, that the fun bit. <laughs> but we are both really looking forward to it. Well, don't, I don't 
I dislike where I live now. I'm not going to say where he is because it's not going to, but I don't like it here anymore. It's it's become, the town itself has become much busier and much noisier and messier. It just doesn't feel the place it used to be. It's not going to break reputation at the best of times, but let's even go further downhill. And I want to move somewhere that's small, quiet and rural, basically. So we're moving west if you're in the UK, we're moving to the West Country. Fortunately, where we live, the housing area in the immediate vicinity sells pretty well, pretty fast. We know this from our own research on houses sold around here. So we're envisaging being moved fairly quickly once you finally go on the market. But as soon as we've moved, that's when Ninth Circle Press really gets his grand rollout. With that, <laughs> I shall pause for a moment and take a breath. <laughs> well, the uh, the moving part, which uh, I, I just went through a few months ago, is is just no fun especially when uh you know you're working on the timing with the selling the old house and getting the new house and getting mm -hmm. the money set up and oh man oh man but you know once you once you get in then then it's it's kind of you breathe a sigh of relief and i i still confess i have not uh uh done all the organization that i i want to do <laughs> uh but uh i'm working on it uh the it was funny because the uh the movers, the, the two guys, two young young men that met moved me down from Michigan to Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Uh, these guys were just tireless. I, I just couldn't believe it. And one of them said that he thought I had more books in his hometown library, which <laughs> could could be true, I guess. That is a problem that I will face as well. I must just say. <laughs> well, I, I still have a, a, a basement full of boxes unpacked, and uh, my 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 bookshelves are not uh, they're they're partly stocked. Uh, but I don't have all my my pictures and posters and, mm -hmm. and so forth up on the wall. And so, uh, but it, that's that will happen. That will happen before too Absolutely, long. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did want to ask a, a question about the books. Now, yeah. Yeah, the say say the average person that's that's interested in the unexplained or the paranormal, mm -hmm. and they 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 go to a bookstore to get your books or online. Uh, are they are these going to be are some of them going to be a little bit beyond say the average person that might be interested in these subjects are they a bit, bit very heavy or are, are some of them very accessible i think to be honest with you the the five that are in the pipeline all of which probably do require a fair degree of knowledge of the occult more generally and none of them, none of them are introductory texts of any kind i mean mine does go into an introduction to what the clip on situaka are but it, it does also require to have some knowledge of the kabbalah really um i do try to make it accessible what i write but i know the other types are coming along they are more for the connoisseur those who already have a background and knowledge of the occult particular areas and um, that's the thing i mean I'm, that's what i'm saying i'm trying to aim for kind of a middle ground it's not going to be hopefully if you're a practitioner of a good understanding of these topics it's not going to be too heavy for you at all if it's new i'd suggest other introductory material first would probably be the best approach to really get to groups of women you can buy it anyway you know by all means do but you know you might find it's maybe heavy going if you're new to the whole genre well you can always uh you know reach out and and buy one of these tomes and then uh you know if you you can always do the research and try and think well what does this mean you know and might, that might make it even more interesting for absolutely well for my own personal writing i'm always you know, on Facebook a lot. I'm always available for people who have questions about, you know, what what's in the stuff I've written. And people do reach out and ask questions quite often, and I'm happy to answer them. And some of the, the books I've written for other um, publishers, like um, Troy Books with the book on runes, that is introductory. You don't need to have any foreknowledge to before you pick that one up to understand it. My book on 
old witchcraft practices, the actual proper spells, the wiki show decay. Again, it's introductory. You can follow it and use it as a history text or as an active piece of magical text, which you can make use of. And some people tell me they've done, you know, I've got messages of people saying this. I use that spell and it worked. <laughs> so, you know, it's at different levels. My book on um, Enochian kind of has an introductory section to begin. It's where you need to have probably some knowledge of John D and the Enochian system to make sense of that one which is coming out in second edition, by the way, in this spring, which is what I've been working over Christmas with my publisher, which I'm very pleased to say is coming out, the second expanded edition with extra material and a few corrections made, which is quite nice. So my, both my first two books are going to be in the second edition. The Rune book came out with Troy Books a couple of years ago, and now Libra Coronzum should be out this spring with Three Hands Press. So I'm quite pleased with that, which is a nice time. I've launched you my book company, of course. So hopefully, it kind of raises my profile a bit with the the second edition of a of a book I wrote originally about twenty years ago. It was first published in twenty seventeen by a small publishing company, but the, the three hands press were much larger, so they'd be able to publish more copies, far more copies, get more a wider distribution, which of course is quite nice for me. But um, yeah, so that's what I've really been up to. But of course, still kept a hand in with the paranormal stuff, having enjoyed some very interesting conversations the last few months on the PAUK show. We did, um, Karen and I talked about witchcraft and magic in the world of the supernatural and the paranormal in terms of what you can use, magic rituals, that kind of stuff, if you're on investigations to cause things to happen. Talked about that on one particular show. We had a very interesting chat with a, a medium who's um, very good from what I hear and, and certainly talking to her, she seems to really know her stuff. So we've had some interesting shows. But, of course, this show, our show, has sat dormant. But it's nice. We are back. We are doing it again. <laughs> so for those who may have missed it, I think it's worth talking about where you now live because of people, I mentioned a couple of people I know somebody lives where you live and they're like, wow, God, bloody yes, I don't know more about that. But, you know, for those who haven't heard, because they may have not listened to the other shows, where are you living now, Steve? Well, I am in, uh, I am deep in the Ohio Valley and West by God, Virginia, as some people call it. I'm actually uh, a, a few inches from downtown Point Pleasant. Yeah. Now, Point, Point Pleasant, of course, is synonymous with the Mothman, uh, John Keel, the Men in Black, uh, strange lights moving overhead and all kinds of uh, paranormal activity that was going on in the middle 60s uh, leading up to the bridge collapse, the Silver Bridge in, in uh, uh, December 15th, 1967. I'm literally just a few streets away from where the, the bridge used to go span across to Ohio. <laughs> and I live right on the road where the scarberries and the mallets were chased by the Mothman on November 15th, 1966. So uh, I'm I'm, uh, set pretty well here in in the heart of uh, Point Pleasant. Um, uh, I'm working at the Mothman Museum. Mothman Museum was uh, founded founded by Jeff Wamsley. Uh, uh, Jeff uh, was about six years old when all this stuff happened in the mid 60s. And uh, he uh, he grew up with, uh, he was actually Linda Scarberry's paper boy. There were several Mothman witnesses living right on his street. <laughs> so over the years, he became more and more interested and started collecting uh, newspaper clippings and all the, uh, the folklore, the history, and he founded a museum several years ago. I think it was about 2006. It used to be across the street on Main Street in a smaller building. Now it has uh, moved across the street and expanded a couple times. 
things. Uh, I work on weekends normally. I'm sort of an information jockey. Uh, mm-hmm. since, since I've been following this since I was in junior high school in Michigan uh, in November of 66, uh, I have, uh, in a, we, we, a few months before that, we came off the, uh, the famous swamp gas sightings. Uh, in uh, March of 1966, we had there was a wave of UFO sightings where Dr. Hynek was still attached to the Project mm-hmm. Blue Book, and he uh, he suggested that some of the sightings might be swamp gas, and of course that answered the the question for the the press uh, mm-hmm. as to what UFOs were. But uh, so anyway, it was the, the that particular sighting where where the this this winged humanoid chased the two couples down Route 62 into Point Pleasant from the TNT area, an area north of Point Pleasant that they uh, they nicknamed that because they, they made munitions there during World War II, uh, mm-hmm. long since abandoned. But uh, they uh, uh, that particular sighting hit the wire services. It went all over the world. And uh, you, uh, Jeff has uh, articles in the museum where you can see the even the, the military newspaper uh, that was, uh, you know, uh, spread all over the place, uh, talked about this winged red-eyed creature that chased these two couples. So uh, it's it's a lot of, I mean, it, it's so much fun. Uh, I, uh, I I talk to people that come into the museum. There are people that come from all over uh, the U.S. and all over the world, uh, England, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Austria, uh, France. I mean, we uh, it's just amazing the people that make the pilgrimage to the, the Mothman mm-hmm. Museum. So uh, it's just, and, and of course, the Mothman, the, the majestic Mothman statue is, is right next to the museum. And uh, I, oftentimes I will wander out there, so I'll take people's uh, photos so that they, one of them doesn't have to stand mm-hmm. out or they, ha- or they don't have to try and cram a, a selfie where they can't get the whole, <laughs> uh, whole, the whole Mothman in. So uh, it's, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's hard to believe I'm, I'm actually gainfully employed and they're paying me to do this. Excellent. So it really is that popular still that the museum is enough tourist interest for a museum to run. That's amazing. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's 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 really well done. Uh, along one of the walls, uh, Jeff got a lot of the uh, movie, the uh, memorabilia, the film that uh, actually is about 20 years old now uh, with Richard Gere. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's uh, I don't know. Have you, have you seen the film uh, the Mothman Prophecies? Oh, Lord, once or twice at least. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, remember the scene where uh, his wife is is uh, uh, drawing these illustrations of this creature she saw. Very oh. kind of scary. Well, they, they, he has those. He has those props in there, the original oh, right. props. So, so uh, it's very cool. Very, very, some very uh, nice uh, items that are in there. That was, um, oh, she was, oh, what was the woman's name? I was kind of uh, quite surprised when I it was. She was in uh, Will and Grace. That was it. Yes, so, yes. I just yeah, can't. Right. It's funny because I used to watch that quote with Willow Grace when it was on originally, and it's like, see her, it's like, oh, hello, where's Will? <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I've seen that movie quite a few times. And as I think we've talked about in the past, it's, um, you, the movie doesn't really capture the essence of the events. I mean, it covers some of them, but the, the actual true story is far stranger, isn't it? And far more bizarre than even yes. the film portrays, which is interesting because often they, 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 they sort of make things seem more dramatic for the screen but this way this one was the other way around it wasn't it It was um, more dramatic in real life yeah it uh now uh when uh, when john keel actually when he read the uh the, the screenplay 
he was actually very happy. I mean, he was he was almost giddy. I can't remember who the who the lady was he was talking to. Uh, Brent Rains, who who is kind of Keel's biographer, uh, mm -hmm. writes this in in the book uh, John Keel: The Man, the Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries. And it, Keel Keel felt that they at least got some of the. Uh, the essence of some of the ideas of the book. You know, he realized they updated it. They've got his character married and so forth. But I think a lot of the screenplays that had come over the years were turning Mothman into kind of a monster. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he was very happy uh, that they, he, he thought they got some of the essence. And an interesting thing is if you have the, the DVD with the extras and you look at some of the deleted scenes, you can see where they were trying to incorporate more of the, uh, more elements of the book into the film, but they just, they just didn't make it. But uh, I, it, my, my first, when I first saw it, I was a little disappointed and I wanted more of the sort of the men in black uh, aspect of it. But I, I understood afterwards why they didn't do it because they had made two silly movies on the men in black <laughs> and it would have been hard to separate and differentiate the, uh, the real history or folklore, whatever you want to call it, mm. from the the comedic films. Sure. I mean, that opens up a question I've often thought about. You know, are we effectively talking about two different kinds of men in black? You have the sort of the secret branch of government, you like men in black, who are nevertheless ordinary human beings, but working for an executive branch that perhaps isn't so obvious. Or we have the more paranormal men in black, the ones that don't appear to be quite human, almost seem like robotic or incomplete or do strange things. It's almost like there's two kinds of versions, as, as, as far as I tend to read it anyway. I mean, I don't, what do you think? Yeah, I, I've, I've always thought that, and I think uh, John Keel mentions that somewhere. I, I, I remember uh, Nick Redfern quoting uh, John Keel and pointing out uh, different types of men in black in, uh, oh, heck, what, which book is that? Uh, Oh, <laughs> it'll come to me. But it was interesting because he, he it's, I, I loved it because uh, uh, Redfern said, uh, John, I, I think John Keel was always ahead of his time. Uh, even in whatever afterlife domain he is now, he probably still is. And he was referring to Keel, again, looking at some of these, you know, he, he used the term men in black as kind of a generic term. It, not necessarily uh, men in dark clothing with, with black fedoras, uh, but sometimes there seem to be Air Force officers uh, that uh, maybe the insignia wasn't quite right or or there was no major French or whatever he called himself when they checked. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are also the classic, uh, the, the the weird ones, which which do seem, uh, you can you can make a connection between, uh, if you go back to, uh, is it uh, Nicholas Flamel? Do I have that right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, he uh, when he wrote about uh, witches consorting with the devil, well, these these uh, devilish characters looked very much like some sometimes modern day men in black. They might be mm. riding a black horse instead of driving a black Cadillac, but they might also be ha wearing a cloak or a, or a hat, and 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 sharing some of the same perhaps characteristics of the modern day men in black. So there are there definitely is, uh, you know, you you have this continual. Uh, 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 where people would say, well, they, uh, you know, uh, 
people that uh, describe these things aren't always terribly sophisticated. So mm. somebody from the U.S. might say, well, they look kind of foreign, you know, a dark <laughs> foreign type. Uh, uh, or, or a lot of times they had uh, kind of an Asian countenance, but they didn't think they were Asian, you know. Yeah, yeah. So there, and that and that shows up in a lot of uh uh, a lot of encounters with, uh, you know, so-called humanoids or, or whatever, abduction cases or whatever. So uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, uh, um, in Operation Trojan Horse, which is, I guess, maybe Keel's grand opus, uh, where he tries to pull all these things together, uh, he quotes a uh, General Spatz. General Spatz was one of the big generals of World War II. And somewhere in a press conference in 1948, General Spatz says something like, there's no truth to the rumor that uh, Spaniards are driving flying saucers or that they're coming from Spain. <laughs> now, I don't know the context. Was it was it a joke or whatever? But mm. then, you know, at the same time, Keel uh, was getting reports of people. And this is kind of before the Greys came in and took over. Keel yeah. was getting reports from people that uh, – uh, of of that type of almost a man in black type stepping out of some of these UFOs, kind of human looking, but kind of in quotes foreign and, and so forth. So yeah. uh, and then, you know, there's the classic uh, Joe Symington and the, and the cosmic pancakes from outer space. Joe was asked by the local judge, hey, Joe, what do these guys look like? Little green men? And he said, no, judge, they were kind of swarthy looking like Italians. <laughs> so what do we got? Italians and uh, at Italy and, and Spain with a secret space program we didn't know about? <laughs> Probably not. No, it seems, well, I don't know, it's a little unlikely, shall we say. <laughs> but it's but, just, but, I mean, there is references like Men in Black in witchcraft folklore as well, which is the devil. But it's one description that's often used or, or referencing the, the man in black as is basically the devil. So there is definitely a witchcraft connection there. So it's, but again, as we've said many times in the past, there's a historic connection to these things. None of these things are on their own. They're, they're sort of echoes throughout sort of history of these strange anomalous beings and events and creatures and all those sorts of things that we talk about. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it just, it's endlessly fascinating. And I, I, you do hear uh, uh, some reports that do uh, seem to be legitimate. You know, we, we're always faced with the possibility that somebody is spinning a tail or, or miss, you know, there was a, uh, there was a case in, uh, you know, the, the dubbed enigma and the, the Welsh triangle, that sort of thing went, all that stuff that went down in Wales in, uh, uh, in, in southwestern Wales in 1977. There was a report in one of the books about uh, sort of men in black, but then I, I read another uh, uh, report about it that it was simply it was just mis misrepresented and it wasn't really sinister at all. So we just have to be really careful sometimes. These things uh, start and then they get told and retold, and you know you sometimes you just don't know what to believe. No, of course, that's one of the problems you have with folklore more generally is the retelling of stories becomes Chinese whispers, and of course they get. Um, altered and altered and altered throughout time i mean one of the longer term writing projects which I've, we've talked about before but i am still engaged in is it is alongside the collection of all those real first-hand accounts of witchcraft magic spells and incantations are a number of very strange but again first-hand stories of strange experiences and strange encounters that people have had over the years of about the victorian times and earlier and i am still slowly compiling those into a book or we'll do eventually one of these days that is a collection of these very strange tales of first-hand experiences of 
just oddness you know we said we have talked about it before the idea that you know modern times these strange creatures come from ufos and spacecrafts going back further in time they came from the underground they came from hills and mounds so or they just appear from nowhere i mean all of these the tales i've sort of made note of they are talking about these things appearing from nowhere literally they're just there and then they're not if they're sort of winging out of existence almost which i find particularly fascinating this idea that because they don't have an understandable vehicle for transporting a a way of manifesting that we would make sense of. We just see them appear. I find that really interesting. Sometimes the the devil they, they weren't they didn't have vocal cords, so when you heard them speak, the voice just seemed to come from nearby. Yes. And then you look at several other uh, cases. Uh, some UFO cases, the entity has a has a a, a uh, some kind of a speaker or whatever on his chest. But there was one. I think it might have been Gary Wilcox, uh, where he was he was hearing them speak. It wasn't telepathy. He could hear hear it audibly, but there was no visible. The, the lips weren't moving or whatever, mm. you know, suggesting perhaps you know every once in a while you get these 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 possible patterns i mean we, we don't know and of course you and i have talked uh, at length about uh, uh various elements of folklore the uh the elementals the little people and yeah. uh and and various uh uh ufo encounters and you know missing time is of course a, a classic uh situation that has been going on forever uh the, the one that i always was intrigued by is uh the, the stories where uh, there was one where a young boy uh, he meets the little people and they're, they're he's uh he's i guess he's in their realm or whatever and they're throwing this this ball back and forth which seems like it might be made of gold and so he as when he leaves he tries to take it with him but you're, you always get caught. You know, you don't ever, mm. you can't get that stuff out of fairyland. And I can't help but think of Betty and Barney Hill, the, the classic uh-huh. case. Most people know the, the story, but there's the, the situation where Betty asked to take this strange book with her, with this strange writing and photographs. You know, if people don't believe her, she would know that I, I this, really, this really happened because I have this book. And yeah. of course, they're about ready to leave the ship the leader comes to her and says, I'm sorry, the others object. You can't have the book. And she's yeah. so upset. But you just can't get those treasures out of fairyland or across the threshold of a spaceship. That's exactly it's that, that kind of almost, almost the proof, almost the real evidence. And then no, you can't have it. <laughs> well, well, there's another another one. I was uh, I was rereading uh, John Keel's The Eighth Tower. Uh, the Eighth Tower is the sort of a sequel to the Mothman Prophecies. They they cut out half of the manuscript to the Mothman Prophecies, but uh, Keel salvaged some of it in The Eighth Tower. Well, he he talks about when he's when he was in the uh, Point Pleasant area in the middle '60s, he ran into a guy. Uh, his name I don't recall, but he was a a retired newspaper reporter, and he talked about an incident that happened back in <clears throat> in 1924, where they saw a, a farmer saw this what he thought was an airplane crash into the woods, and it, it was kind of an odd looking airplane though because it just looked like a fuselage with no wings or propellers. So they the sheriff and the newspaper reporter and a few people they go in they find uh, this thing crashed and uh, the 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 guy. Uh, said he thought they were Japanese. They, they were all kind of short in stature, and they had uh, they, they looked like in quotes <laughs> foreigners. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this is West Virginia in the, in the mm. uh, 20s, so you know, I guess we can forgive them. Uh, but 
and they uh, they looked surprised to see them. And they said, well, don't worry, nobody's hurt. Uh, we're going to give a full report to the sheriff later because one of these guys spoke English. Everybody else was speaking in some kind of a strange tongue. And then uh, the guy, the reporter, he, he called it a thingamajig. He saw this thing laying on the ground and he thought, well, heck, I'm going to take this back as a souvenir. Apparently it had fallen off the ship. And he said, I, I, I don't know why I didn't tell these guys about it. So he takes it home. And, uh, of course, later on, they go back. The clearing is, is it's all gone. There's, there's no, no remnants there. But that night, about three in the morning, there's a knock on the door and he gets up and he looks out and there's a guy dressed in kind of a military uniform with one of the old wide brim hats. Mm -hmm. And he says very gruffly, I think you've got something that belongs to us. And he's a little bit uh, befuddled and he's, oh, so he goes to his, his jacket and he gets the thingamajig out of the pocket and he gives it to him and the guy leaves without a word. And he said he didn't see a horse or a car or anything. So it's almost like a, another sort of a man in black in, in generally speaking in mm -hmm. occurrence, but whatever that thingamajig was, he was, wasn't able, wasn't able to get that out of fairyland either. So to speak. That's a shame. <laughs> Absolutely a shame there. I mean, what, just going back to briefly saying about sort of not speaking, but not moving their mouth. One of the yes. stories I know I've covered before that was one of the first ones I uncovered when I was looking for these first hand accounts was of a woman who had gray skin walking on the beach, who the description that was given in the report, Port says that she was speaking but not from her mouth the words came from her chest so that kind of huh. ties in the idea of some kind of apparatus on the front that where the voice was coming from or that she wasn't speaking normally through her mouth it was coming from another part of her body from a diaphragm somehow you know it's those weird little encounters isn't it There's, that's the thing it's that i find the most fascinating those strange little instances that you just think oh it doesn't really fit into any category you know ufo spaceship whatever um underground creatures emerging ghosts appearing from nowhere they're all kind of dealing with that same kind of high strangers hence the name of the show of course but i, I do find that those more unusual accounts now the most interesting by far even that above a sort of what you might call a standard ufo society that kind of it might be boring <laughs> compared to these really really weird things you just you can't get your head around you can't make a head nor tail of they just seem to occur and you all you can do is record them and see what correlations you find with other events of a similar nature yeah it's uh i find the uh the the, the high strangeness aspects the most interesting but it's it's not just because they're uh, the stories are so fascinating uh it's that uh, you know you and i both uh are always we're just kind of wired to recognize and look for patterns in these mm -hmm. things. And whether it's it's a classic UFO case, cryptid, uh, uh, some kind of poltergeist activity or whatever, there are so many interesting parallels uh, that we've talked about so many times, like you know vehicle stoppages with uh, sometimes with a cryptid. Uh, there was that classic case in, uh, well, it was in West Virginia in about the mid 60s, uh, a guy named Doc Priestley was driving along and this Bigfoot steps out and his car stalls and rolls to mm. a stop. And eventually uh, he sees it again and his engine burns out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, well, that's not supposed to happen. No. And he doesn't tell his buddies, his hunting buddies are in the bus up ahead. Uh, he doesn't tell them anything about it. And he's quiet for a few months because he wants to come back to that area and hunt. And he was afraid if he told them about the Bigfoot, they wouldn't come back and hunt. So no. later on, he spills the beans. And, and Stan Gordon, 
who wrote uh, Silent Invasion, in co uh, uh, covering all the strange events that happened in 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 uh, South Western Pennsylvania in 73-74. He also came across a couple situations where the person's driving along, Bigfoot crosses the road, and the car stalls. So it's you know not a common occurrence, but uh, it, it makes me think of when John Keel wrote that he found that why he started to connect cryptids and UFO phenomena together, he found that people that experienced both were uh, ex would experience the same kinds of physical effects. Mm. Uh, aches, you know, ache, muscle ache, uh, thirst, and even conjunctivitis. And a mm. classic case, one of the first witnesses of the Mothman was Connie Carpenter, very, very early in this, this year when, when it all broke. And she was driving past the Mason County golf course. And she looked and she sees this six, seven foot humanoid being with wings. And I don't even think it flapped its wings. It kind of went up straight like a helicopter. And she saw the red eyes and it really freaked her out. The next day, she had a case of conjunctivitis, just the same way that many people that have close encounters with some strange light or unknown craft uh, contract conjunctivitis. So that's very interesting. Definitely. It, it suggests that there is some, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, um, it's, I mean, especially with the, the battery power and, and engines done, there's kind of EM feel, EM pulses being generated that's killing off anything electrical. But then obviously it's having some effect in the, atmosphere as well to have that physical effect on you like the conjunctivitis of course and em field about how powerful won't cause conjunctivitis something else is causing that but it's the distortion i mean the, the best way you can put it really is the distortion of the local energy field around you when these things happen and one of the most common things we experience on ghost investigations when it's seemingly paranormal activities occurring battery drainage you know, it's so common you know the batteries go from like 90 percent to like five percent in a matter of seconds that the power just suddenly disappears and you think ultimately the power that you're dealing with there is battery power so it's somehow inhibiting or accelerating a chemical reaction ultimately of course unless it is an em pulse but an em field pulse would permanently to damage the equipment it's only that the power drains down so it is definitely some kind of distortion in the local energy field or whatever energy it is around that seems to tie in with these mysterious events there's, there's a definite correlation between those two i think even uh phantom armies uh can stall a vehicle uh there was that case with uh, dorothy strong in uh in North Cumberland, I think, uh, 66 maybe. Uh, she's driving along in a taxi and this phantom army starts to manifest. And apparently they said it was the Battle of Otterburn from 1388 because right. this thing had manifested before. They'd seen the, 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 uh, the, the soldiers' uniforms and so forth. But anyway, the, the car stalls, the fare meter goes crazy and they feel like they're being buffered by a force field. And then the as the as this army comes close and they fade out and eventually everything dissipates and then everything goes back to normal. Mm. So strange with that condition yes. is that distortion, and then the distortion dies down and things return. The car starts again. The radio comes back on. It is just that's what I find the most fascinating is. It's more than just you watching something occur. Now I know we've talked before about the idea of are we just seeing something out there in the world around us or is it in our mind or is it somewhere between the two but it, it, these things all tying together it's obviously affecting your brain as well because you're having these yes. weird insights and experiences this otherness and it, i mean for me it kind of leads towards the idea of this is parallel reality stuff we're dealing with that the, the the flip over between one and the other cause a weird localized distortion that's what you see the distortion field and then they flip back to where they've come from 
one question that came to me a while ago is are these things happening deliberately or accidentally i mean probably both i suppose but you know, things like example like the bigfoot sightings these sort of appear almost from nowhere only to then disappear into nowhere but they're temporarily there and visible and then kind of go because you go and looking for whether he's been seen and there's nothing there so maybe they have stepped into our reality for a while accidentally almost like a, a gateway a doorway i don't know I mean, i'm theorizing as we go in here but right. and then step back through like a, or it's like a temporary window opens up when you observe something happening i mean i often go back to a story a friend of mine told many years ago of a very very real experience he had whilst we we're searching in a library in london we we're sitting at a quiet desk and with books around him doing some research and he looked up and a man walked towards him and passed by in very strange quite old-fashioned clothing it didn't fit or belong at all to the time frame on it didn't look right but the guy clearly saw my friend because he also looked at my friend very quizzically as if to say who are you what are you doing here almost as if they were seeing each other from different times time periods <laughs> observing each other so it was like a two-way strange experience he said he got up and looked where the guy had gone and there was no one there there was no one in the vicinity at all but you know that kind of i found that one let's say it's a friend's experience really fascinating this idea that you are being observed as well as observing these strange phenomena and on, on, each is as surprised as the other and seeing the other if you like it, it seems like uh, keel was suggesting there is an element of uh, i guess call it co-creation he talked about <laughs> paranormal mimicry and the reflective factor how in it, when you, and when you look at the uh, the with the progression of these strange sightings in the sky uh, from uh, you know strange lights that people thought were witches carrying their lanterns on their brooms to yeah. uh, the mysterious airships to the ghost flyers to the Foo Fighters, uh, a lot of times people just saw strange lights and then kind of imposed on them what they thought they were, or they would kind of become more uh, clear afterwards but uh so it's yeah there's something i think there is like you were mentioning there is an element that it's it's not simply something that comes out of nowhere i i think maybe some of us are just tuned into some of this stuff and that's why uh keel talked about certain people that are uh kind of prone to see uh these things uh mm. more than others like, like me for example i've very seldom have experienced anything. I know you have had some experiences, so I think mm. your tuning is a little bit better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say that perhaps my activity with the occult and witchcraft and magic probably has attuned me to strange phenomena. But of course, my very, very first experience, I was like 10 or 11 years old. And I didn't know anything about anything, you know, just these very odd sighting that's one of those ones, was, I'm not going to tell the story again, I've it so many times before, but it's just stays with me. It's I can visualize it now. I mean, we're talking 40 years ago. I can still, more than 40 years ago, that's quite depressing, but yeah, a long time ago, I can still see those two guys in, in uniform, army uniform, in a base that was abandoned and, and closed down that they couldn't possibly have been in under normal circumstances, dressed in World War One uniform. You know, that really stays with me, that experience. I often try and think about that. Was there anything that was a, a, a kind of sign for me that weirdness was about to happen. But no, from memory, nothing. It was literally just playing football in the sunny afternoon on a Sunday. And then see these two figures walk past me. So my biggest experience probably still remains that one. It's one that you almost find yourself chasing your original experience over and over again, trying to relive it. I've had other odd occurrences and odd sightings, certainly on, on ghost investigations, but that one still for me remains the strongest, that side of the two figures. But, you know, you, you do get that feeling often we'd go to some locations, you know almost from the beginning it was going to be an interesting night or it's going to be completely flat. You could kind of just tell that almost like the vibe was already there and almost in place as if the 
the location wasn't prepared to do anything if you like or whatever's there wasn't prepared to do anything that particular night and that can be quite frustrating if you've traveled for hours <laughs> logging equipment around and there's nothing happening but that's the chance you take of course but it's those spontaneous experiences are, are the most fascinating because they come out of the blue unexpectedly and you're not really prepared for it and yeah i do think there is definitely something to the idea that once you've had an experience you have more maybe partly because you're looking for them partly because you're more attuned to it mm-hmm. it's that phrase I, the, I do love that phrase and often repeat it from the moffat prophecy's movie where the um guy playing dr alexander leak which of course is kenny basically yes rewrote and john dill and he says you noticed them and they noticed that you noticed and i always find that quite chilling thought you know that you've observed them but they've observed you observing them right it means they know you know they're there <laughs> it's like oh it's a little sinister but that idea that you become more attuned to the possibility of seeing these things i heard john keel on uh art bell show about 20 years ago when he was promoting the movie he hadn't done much in the way of uh of interviews and that's that's where he said that he uh he did enjoy the film, you know, even though they had made some changes. He said the thing they really nailed was the paranoia that he felt. And you mm-hmm. get a feeling for that when you read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that he thought Alan Bates, who played Dr. Leak, and of course, like you say, Leak is keel spelled backwards. Yeah. Uh, he said he, he reminded him of him. He thought he thought <laughs> Alan Bates <laughs> nailed his character pretty well. Let me let me do a quick station identification yeah. here. You are listening to The High Strangeness Factor, copyrighted on the Paranormal UK Radio Network. I am Steve Ward, and Andy Mercer and I are playing a little catch-up from our long break. Okay. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, you know, I, I, my, my, my reading is, is just so uh, uh, haphazard. I just, I just go where my interest is at the time. So consequently, I probably have 30 books that are not quite finished. But uh, <laughs> I came across this. I was reading uh, there's an excellent book by Colin Wilson called Alien Dawn. And uh, he talks a lot about his correspondence with John Keel. There's a, a great chapter on Jacques Vallée. Uh, it's a very, very interesting book. And in there, he mentions a book. That this is what happens to me all the time. I'm reading some book, and they'll mention half a dozen other books, yeah. and I have to have them. You know how that I goes. I know that feeling very well. <laughs> <laughs> well, he mentions this book called Hungry Ghosts by Bob Fisher. And I've just started it, but he gave kind of a synopsis of it, so I know what it's going to be about. I've been I've been very fascinated by various aspects of channeling because that that overlaps into everything: the uh, the space brothers, the UFO entities, uh, the, uh, the the highly evolved spirit beings, and so forth that people believe they're in contact with. And uh, apparently, he was uh, he made contact with this. Uh, supposedly this woman from Greece and uh, she told him that they were together in a in an earlier incarnation and so forth and he was really <laughs> kind of falling for this uh, this entity kind of messing up his own personal life <laughs> and he was working with other mediums uh, long story short is he discovered that some of the I mean the information was very specific about the town she was from and, and time period and all that and then he started checking out some things and found out that so many of these things while they sound uh real and believable he would do the history and find out that there was the the town she was talking about didn't exist at this one point Uh there were all kinds of flaws you know it sounded good on the surface but when he actually delved into it uh he was being 
led on by what a trickster? I mean, what what was going mm-hmm. on there? So I think this is going to be a uh, really uh, an eye-opening book to uh, to the the channeling uh, stuff uh, in general. Yeah, I'm, I remember the there's another book. I think Wilson had some connection too. It's written by other people. The Dark Gods, the similar kind of thing. As they were writing, this is just top of my head, but as they were writing that, one of the guys in particular who was Sort of very grand in reality, it was a school teacher, I believe. I had some very strange experiences actually in Glastonbury while they were writing the book, almost as if to say that you should perhaps not be writing this because you're revealing stuff that maybe shouldn't be revealed. I mean, this, I'm some, you know, it's a very brief summary of what I've been told about this. I must be, I've got the book, we're not going to read it yet. But that kind of thing of where you're writing about something that perhaps you need to be careful what you're saying. It's like you're getting caught up. Instead of just telling the story of an experience or what's going on, you become almost part of the story yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, and I, I, uh, I mean, I was, I've always been uh, fascinated by the, the stories of the Space Brothers. You know, uh, George Van Tassel, wh- uh, who lived under, literally under giant rock. This was a, a giant boulder in the California desert, and he was the one that used to have these uh, great. Uh, uh, conferences uh, with the uh, primarily with the contactees back uh, in the uh, oh from I think the late fifties to uh, uh, into the I think nineteen seventy, oh. uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I would have loved Andy. I would have loved to have been able to go to some of these. Uh, mm. You know, you had uh, uh, he, he served uh, hamburgers and drinks, <laughs> and uh, he he uh, he had this air uh, perfectly air conditioned uh, 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 space underneath the rock. He would get up there. He was uh, supposedly was uh, he, he would go. He would do channeling underneath the the rock and uh with a whole series of these space brothers and that's where uh this thing this thing just goes off in all kinds of directions but uh trevor james constable who was the the guy that uh supposedly photographed uh sky critters with infrared photography in the mojave desert uh that's what he learned to channel from uh, initially but then he kind of left that behind but uh, they had all the all the famous contactees like Adamski and Angelusi and and so forth would uh, would speak at these uh, conferences, and then later on um, uh, George Hunt Williamson, who su- was supposed to be one of the original witnesses to uh, George Adamski's meeting in the desert with Orthon from Venus, mm. which is a little dubious, but uh, that yeah. he uh, he started supposedly he was uh, he wrote a book called The Saucers Speak. And he with uh, Lyman Streeter, his name, Lyman Streeter's name wasn't revealed till later, but he was a ham radio operator. And supposedly they were getting communications from the Space Brothers over ham radio. <laughs> uh, well, interesting enough, uh, uh, um, James Mosley, who was the editor of Saucer News. I hope I'm not confusing people too much with all this this lore, but uh, uh, he... Uh, he he wrote a great book, uh, Mosley, called "Shockingly Close to the Truth," and mm-hmm. he goes back and he deals with more the personalities of the UFO scene than than theory and so forth. But mm-hmm. he uh, he talked to Lyman Streeter and George Hunt Williamson and found out that it it was more likely that they were actually doing uh, channeling and Ouija board stuff, and the, the the suggestion that it was ham radio was kind of a literary device to make it seem more legitimate. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, so that's that's really interesting. Uh, hmm. But uh, and then you have the uh, you know Carla Ruckart 
uh, Don Elkins uh, uh, with the law of one, the raw materials, the uh, oh, yes. like, like like the Egyptian raw. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm reading a book called Tilting at Windmills, which is long series of interviews with Carla and uh, the other guy. Uh, let's see, uh, Don had died and then there was another man that uh, that was part of their uh, their team, but uh, just really fascinating. The, the the messages that were coming through were so technical and specific, you know. And you wonder uh, how do you sort through this stuff? Uh, I mean, obviously, some channeling is uh, the person's delusional. Uh, yes. Some some are charlatans, but others are do seem to be receiving some kind of messages. And uh, anyway, I just find the other thing I found uh, interesting about it is that again patterns. Uh, the uh, Rukart was getting some of the same names of the entities that Van Tassel was and George Hunt Williamson was. <laughs> so and of course Ashtar. Ashtar gets more FaceTime, even though he doesn't have a face, I guess, than anybody. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, and then and then there are certain themes that show up, uh, like the uh, the planet that used to be the asteroid belt uh, it is Maldek. It was destroyed by evil forces. Uh, another consistent thing that comes from different channelers is the Orion group or the bad guys that the Pleiadians are the good guys. So I, I just find this interesting. It's like this this kind of. Uh, I don't know, collective unconscious soup out there yes. that, that yeah. people can maybe tap into and they're getting some of the same vibrations. I, that's an interesting um, point you're making there because, as you know, my uh, professionally and personally interest in the collective unconscious is a very real concept. I do wonder sometimes that maybe, just maybe, some of this kind of information is from our ancient past where your ancient man believed entities were coming from you know i mean the records show that they were fascinated by particular star constellations that we are today still with astrology of course certain patterns in the sky and things like orion is very very obvious it's always been very obvious so that they would assign that as an area of a particular importance that some sky being may have come from there at some point in the distant past as ancient aliens idea or just the the idea of that being our ancient origins in the stars that maybe that's what these people tap into but because it's filtered through modern mind it becomes something slightly different but maybe those deep rooted ideas are in there and that's what they tap into because again one of the interests of the idea of collective unconscious is the commonality of certain ideas you know a lot of different particularly american cultures um, indigenous cultures who are thousands of miles apart we may never have met often have this sky being connection that is people have come from the stars either they themselves have come from the stars or beings from the stars have come down to aid man's development that seems to be a common theme that runs through a lot of um, North and South American indigenous cultures of old, old culture that there's a theme running there so if you've got particularly American if you like um, uh, channelers perhaps they're tapping into that deep well of knowledge of bringing forward similar ideas now whether those ideas are mythological fantasy stories or of recording real historic events we don't know you know there are plenty of people who say one or the other i mean i always find i'm not a i don't watch ancient aliens a lot i do watch it occasionally but i do find that a lot of the evidence is dubious but there seems to be enough evidence to suggest that maybe someone came from somewhere at some point in our past and made a difference in our reality right. 
whether it's from another planet or another reality on mass, if you like, or cause change to occur. I think there's enough to suggest something happens. Some of this is not all misinterpretations, not all made up. You know, I do find that idea that we connect these channels are connected with some deep unconscious knowledge of an ancient past experience, and they they think it's channeled, if you like, or rethemed into a modern way of seeing things. I, I I enjoy ancient aliens too, although you, uh, there's a lot of stuff I have to kind of filter out. I mean, a, <laughs> a, a good friend of the show has said that uh, Giorgio could connect a box of tacks with aliens. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find uh, a lot of the ideas are very stimulating and the, the different places you see, and I, I never really get tired of it. Um, but uh, yes, you know, there, 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 there is... I, I was very uh, much an ancient alien snob for a while uh, because I, I remember the when the uh, stuff ca- first came out from von Daniken mm. and uh, and you know all the, the all the paperbacks and the the magazines and I just thought oh this is just too much now uh, von Daniken to his credit in his, in the reprint of Chariots of the Gods he had a long introduction where he kind of apologized for some of his youthful exuberance and some of his <laughs> ideas that were a little bit you know too. Uh, uh, too off kilter, I guess, but uh, but still, you know. One, one side note: I, I kind of uh, it, von Daniken, whatever whatever you think about his ideas and research, that guy's a survivor. Man, oh. he was he was absolutely. It's almost like if they could have burned him at the stake, I think they would have. <laughs> but this guy survived, multimillionaire, and I, I kind of you know I I may not agree with everything he says, but uh, you know I. Uh, I just I just see him as a survivor. But oh. back to your other point there, you know, when you when you look back at, at all these incredible megaliths. Now, it's very possible that mankind had knowledge that we, had, you know, we don't know anything about. Mm. But man, oh, man, uh, some of these these structures all over the world, you wonder, I wonder if they did have a little bit of help at times. Yeah, <laughs> I often do find that you step outside, look at the stars and sky. Yeah, they're quite amazing. They're nice. But all these structures that are built to reach towards them, being the pyramids in Egypt, the pyramids in Central America, you know, high points of like reaching towards the stars, things yeah. being drawn on the ground, like the, uh, I forget the name of the Asker lines. It's like not really even visible from the ground. You have to be in the air to see them. Now, of course, the ancient alien theories would be that there were aliens up there watching, or whether well, it took yeah, us up right. the air to see and to draw them. But they were being drawn for somebody looking above, looking down from above, because that's how you see them. You know, you can't really see them on the ground. You think all that effort to draw something on the landscape that you can't see on the ground, they were doing it for someone to see. So what was it that they thought was up there that was looking at? It's, there has to be something, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's UFOs from other planets or other realities or whatever. They, they clearly thought they were drawing it for the benefit of something. Now, it's one thing to make have a mythology that involves star beings coming down from the sky. That's one thing. But to then great great landmass um drawings that can only be seen from the stars is taking it a stage further to the point that you because these things are done by hand obviously there's no machines involved as far as we know anyway so it would have taken a lot of people a long time to create those lines in the deserts that become forms and shapes that can only be seen from above so you you're wondering whether well, they, they obviously there was something they thought they were definitely communicating with and put a lot of effort into showing that they were aware of their presence right uh, a, a couple other things about the uh, I wanted to mention about channeling um, the uh, in, in both uh, uh, George, not, uh, no, George Van Tassel 
uh, he would be with his group under giant rock and they'd say uh, they they want to they would want to meet with them. But well, we, that for some reason, they because of different vibrations or whatever, they couldn't meet. But if you go outside right now and look to the west, you can see our craft out there. And sure enough, they would go outside and they would see some kind of a strange light. Well, the same thing happened with some of the uh, the, the raw materials. The uh, uh, the it's the LL research, I think, light and love research. They didn't. Uh, it was just a period of time where Ra showed up. They were channeling all kinds of other entities, supposedly. But the same thing happened. They said. Uh, can we meet you? Can we see you one on one? No. And they would go into this thing about, you know, different densities and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But if you step outside the house right now and look up, you'll see our craft. And sure enough, they'd step outside and they would see some kind of an object up there. So again, the same pattern. No, we, we can't, you can't really see us, but here's a, here's a, an image to show that we are here, you know, yeah. and you wonder where is that, is that coming from? Is that uh, produced by the witnesses with their belief system or is it something separate from them? It's a good question. It's one of those things that I would always say it's somewhere between the two that our minds are playing a part, but we're observing something that is there, but taking a form that suits so much of what we are with our expectations but i mean it's one of those commonalities i know we've talked about this before that often struck by how often these things begin with light a light anomaly and then become something else changing shape or form or the light itself having a strange effect i mean i often go back to that report i've talked about before with the detlef pass incident when the guy was doing the research found two men one was like um he was a guard on a uh, mine in the Ural Mountains, and another one, he was like sort of a woodsman, both well kitted out, well prepared to deal with all sorts of wildlife they might come across in the Ural Mountains in Russia. And both of them observed a strange yellowy white light moving in the forest that scared the crap out of them. Now, these are experienced people who are used to dealing with wild animals who are armed to deal with um, criminals trying to break into the mine, of course, and that guy's example. Another one was a huntsman. So they're both well used to dealing with wild animals. So why on earth are the simple yellowy-white light moving through the woods scare them? But it did. And say so one found the other one because of a news report and said, I saw the same thing around about the same time. Yeah, it scared the bejesus out of me. And I have no idea why. Because it's just, I'm not that kind of person. They were both saying the same kind of thing, but I'm not the kind of person to be scared by a simple light. So the the light anomaly is the beginning of something else forming or is the key, if you like, the the first dot of something manifesting. I think definitely needs to play a role. So them going outside and seeing something in the sky that wouldn't normally have been there, be it a light or a, an odd shape, I think that plays a part in our understanding of what it is we're experiencing. Uh, John Keel mentioned something like that on the Mothman Prophecies. He talks about how he was uh, used to, you know, prowling around uh, cemeteries at night. And, mm. and you know, he's the one that went into the uh, the old North Power Plant with some of the uh, Mothman witnesses, you know, poking around. But then he, he was in one of the hollers in, in West Virginia. And uh, he saw this uh, kind of a, it was kind of a close encounter with some kind of a craft all lit up. And he was just absolutely petrified. And and furthermore, there was a he had a, a camera right next to him on the seat that he didn't even think about picking up and taking a picture. So, you know, this this is the kind of thing that uh, uh, that that you know that even happens to people that aren't dealing with the paranormal. There was a uh, oh one of the witnesses uh, he was on Finding Bigfoot. I saw him speak, and he he said he was. Uh, 
you know, I guess he was out looking for Bigfoot or whatever, but he's sitting there, he's got his camera, and he on the road in front of him, a bear walks right in front, just lumbers and across, <laughs> across and goes, and then he, he doesn't even think about picking up the camera to take a picture <laughs> of the bear. And it's just a bloody bear. It's nothing uh, nothing with wings or red glowing eyes. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is one of those things, I think, when you have those kind of experiences, you often get transfixed and you literally... I think it's a psychological state. You probably go into probably a version of the fight or flight or freeze because it's like there's such a strange and almost a thing occurring in front of you that the 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 most powerful driver of this is self-preservation, and that leads to the fight or flight where you run away or you fight about the situation. But there's also the freeze where you're overwhelmed and you know that neither really are going. It's not consciously. This is a very rapid subconscious process that neither running nor fighting. You've got a don't stand a chance. You freeze in the hopes you're not going to be seen. We do it, you know, someone's crossing the road and a car comes towards them at great speed. The people freeze. They're like, oh, they don't know what to do. Because that's the worst thing to do. You're going to get hit. But we do it. We kind of freeze in these real moments of panic. And I think sometimes when these things are so odd, they throw us so much that you just freeze. You're like, oh my God. And you just, you watch, you can't help but be transfixed by what you're experiencing. So the idea of them turning away, grabbing your camera and bringing the camera back up again, doesn't occur. You know, there are good UFO type reports. I mean, I know two, okay, I won't give the full story, but two people I know that had, don't know each other at all as far as I know, but they both had a similar kind of experience with family members that they all observed a strange phenomenon above the house or nearby. They went outside to watch it for a few minutes and the others of the family just went back indoors again. And just right. as if nothing was happening. And the person that I know, both cases, they stayed outside for longer and observed. And they what the am I watching here? And then, until it had gone, and then we walked back into the house, and the other people in the house, on both occasions, these two stories, acted as if nothing had happened. There was nothing going on, nothing strange. And they were saying to them, what did you come back inside for? I don't know. I just felt I should do. Like, I shouldn't be watching this. When, when I was getting my stuff together to move, I came across an old cassette. I used to record all kinds of stuff on cassettes. And normally, I was very good about marking them. But this thing just said, save. So I put it in the cassette player. And I started playing it, and it was an interview with Jacques Vallée at a local uh, Detroit radio station. And I thought, oh, yeah, I kind of remember recording that at work because it was 30 years before. And then, you know, he had this uh, – he was talking about his book, Revelations. And the guy that was uh, interviewing him was normally a very hard-nosed uh, political guy. Uh, and, uh, but he was very interested in, in what Jacques Vallée had to say. He had read the book. So I was glad that he was, you know, open to it. But then – the, the first caller was me. I completely no. forgot. <laughs> and I was, I was working in uh, Wyandotte at the time, which is a downriver suburb of Detroit. And it said, Steve from Wyandotte, you're on WXYT. And I thought, holy crap. And so uh, I, I had a nice conversation with Jacques Vallée. And then there were two other uh, interesting callers that came in. And what, this is what made me think of it is the, the, uh, the, the people that uh, uh, just didn't, weren't interested in the sighting. Uh, this one woman called in and said her whole family had this close encounter. And, uh, and then they kind of collectively forgot about it for mm -hmm. years. Yeah. And then one of them brought it up and uh, said, uh, uh, do you remember that? And they, they finally were able to bring it back to memory. And so Mark Scott, who doesn't really know much about this stuff, said to Jacques Vallée, well, is this, is this something that's common? And he said, yes, that's something that's very common. And so I thought that was interesting but uh very nice to know that uh i had forgotten i talked to jacques valet on the radio 30 years ago <laughs> nice to discover you recorded though but that, that 
that makes me wonder about other idea that you know that these things are actually possibly more common than we realize but somehow the, the, we don't tune into them that there are the few oddities like myself and the two of the people i mentioned there that whatever is being done to make you either deliberately not see them or as a consequence of what they're doing you don't see them so whether it's active or passive not seeing them most people don't register it but if, or see something and it kind of like the brain says no no i don't want to know about that whether it's the internal thing that we do as observers, the observing the abnormal thing, no, we don't know about that, and we kind of switch off and go away from it, or whatever we're observing makes us do that, I don't know. But it seems there's a, a relatively small number of people that that doesn't work on, whether it's they don't have it internally to not look at these weirdness, or the weirdness itself, that its attempt to make you not watch it doesn't work. But we have the experience, and I think that's the thing. Once you've opened your mind up with one strange phenomenon experience, you will have more because you you become maybe more attuned to it, or the the filter that makes you not see them doesn't work anymore. I mean, it, 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 I'm thinking a little bit of a thing actually in the the Doctor Who series, the the sort of new version. They have this idea of this perception filter that you can't make things invisible, but you can filter perception. And when they're wearing the perception filter thing, you're not seen. You can be looked at, be in plain sight, but not even seen. I know there's the one of the stories in Doctor Who, there's the, the, this version, basically, of um, the Slender Man, this thing, they look at these alien creatures and see it, and they right. look away and forget they've seen it. It's not that, there was something else. There's another perception filter thing was in one of the other stories, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but this idea that you could filter perception, i.e. the thing can still be there in front of you, but you just don't observe it, you don't see it. There's a like a jokey version of that in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where you're you there's a I can't what they called it now. It's a perception filter thing where you because nothing can be made invisible, but you can make this device that means people don't see it. It becomes not visible, not not witnessed, and it works most of the time because there's a, a scene with Arthur Dent is at Lord's cricket match, and there's an alien spaceship that's landed in the corner. Most people can't see it because the perception filter is switched on on the ship. Another per somebody else's problem filter, I think they called it. Something like that absurd idea. But you didn't it was there, but you didn't see it because you were you it didn't matter to you. It was unimportant, so you wouldn't see it. You'd ignore it because it's strange, so I don't see it. That kind of weirdness going on almost. Uh John Cheney, who is a uh, uh local in the Detroit area, he uh uh he had uh, a, a TV show called I think Ghost uh Oh, I can't remember. Go something. They're all go something. <laughs> go something. Uh, and uh, at weird lectures. He does that. Uh, he's a, a well-known speaker and, and TV personality. He, he was uh, he's from Royal Oak, which is just north of Detroit. And he was telling me one time he's, he's in downtown Royal Oak. There's all kinds of people around. He looks up and he sees a silvery object up in the sky and he's trying to get other people to, to see it. And they look up and then just kind of turn away. And then he looks down a little ways and he sees a, one young girl who's looking up and she's seeing the same thing he is. So you've only got like two people in this crowd of people in downtown Royal Oak, which is a very busy city, that are focused on this object, whatever it is. And mm. everybody else, like Keel talked a lot about this, how people don't see it at all or they see something different, different shape perhaps. And yeah. that, you know, when you're trying to put this into a a hard nuts and bolts category this just doesn't make sense absolutely doesn't fit at all does it i mean i'm often reminded of often things like ghost investigations we used to work with the public um events where members of the public would pay to come along and you'd have phenomena occurring right in front of people some people would see it 
literally see it, others looking at the same thing, saw nothing, experienced nothing. And it wasn't that they weren't making it up, but neither side were making things up, it's just that for whatever reason, they just didn't see it, didn't experience it. And I always find that, because that's why I say I'm convinced that our mind plays a, a part in all these observations, mm-hmm. experiences. Then we're not just passive observers. We know from quantum physics we're not passive observers anyway. You know, in a sort of quantum physics experiment, the observer affects the, the outcome of the experiment just by observing it. So if that's happening at that quantum level, why not in the more macroscopic level? I think entirely likely it is. So that's why I find the most interesting Get much said in the beginning, really, is this the strangest, the high strangest, the super weird stuff that's the best? <laughs> uh, in talking to Bill Konkoleski, and Bill uh, is the MUFON uh, uh, director for Michigan, a uh, really good guy and a, a ex- longtime experiencer. We were having a conversation once, and he told me that uh, uh, people that he knew that weren't terribly tuned in, that when they would, if they spent a lot of time with him, they did become more sensitive just by being in proximity with him. Mm. That so that's interesting. Sense. Well, certainly there's no doubt in my mind that the more ghost investigations you go on, the more you are likely to experience something because that was often the case with these public events. You have people coming time and time again, you would say initially they didn't experience anything, but then later on saying, no, I saw that as well. I experienced that. I heard that. It opens the mind up. I think you become more attuned to these things, which is really what we're talking about here, through activity that is linked to these experiences, i.e. maybe ritual magic, for example, ceremonial stuff, or just going along to investigations and tuning in, however you want to do that, makes the difference. It really does build up that connection. You start seeing and experiencing more because you're trying to see it you're you're exposing yourself more and more so it's more like a kind of radiation if you like and the longer you're there the more exposed you get to it so it does beg the questions why you still haven't seen very much <laughs> well th- there was one time and my reactions to it were kind of interesting and i was uh, kind of beating myself up until i heard some other researchers i respect talk about how they had sometimes been in a, a situation where they didn't they weren't fully aware or, or weren't in the present moment. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah, so yeah. I was, this is some years ago, I went, uh, decided I would go in the dreaded TNT area. This mm-hmm. is uh, still in Michigan. I, I came down and uh, I thought I was going to go, I wanted to go in there alone just to see if I had the uh, intestinal fortitude to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there. I had my, uh, you know, you, you go down Potter's Creek Road, you, you can you pull off and you, you walk down one of these so-called igloo roads. You, you can go into some of these old bunkers very creepy area in the daytime, super creepy at night. And I had my my flashlight, I had my camera going, I had my recorder going, just like a real paranormal investigator. So I, I, I went into one of the igloos and I came back and I started driving back down Route 62. And then I experienced a couple flashes of light, like a, a quick strobe and then another one. And I thought, that's weird. And it seemed mm-hmm. like a particularly dark stretch of road, but I didn't have the presence of mind to think, where is this? I need to come back here tomorrow and see if I can find a, a logical explanation for this. And uh, so I, I went back. Now, my motel I was staying in was across the river in Ohio. So I went and I went there. And the moment I opened the door, the TV set turned on by itself Ooh. and started flipping steadily through channels. <laughs> and I looked up at the clock. And I was thinking, well, I didn't have any missing time. But now thinking back, I wonder, well, I may have. See, I didn't write any of this down. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. again, I wasn't in the present moment. So I did everything wrong. And then I, uh, like any intrepid paranormal investigator, I went up and I unplugged the TV set and I went to bed. 
<laughs> so, but then here's a, here's a, a quick postscript. Uh, a year later, I'm in uh, the, the, a room next to that one with a couple of my buddies that help out with the uh, Mothman Festival. We're just, we're crammed in there saving money. And that night, the TV set turned on by itself. Yeah. And then, so we, we did a, a lot of experimentation with the, which I did not do before, with the remote through walls and all mm -hmm. that stuff. The next day, one of the guys and I came in to get something. The TV set turned on again mm. and flipped through a couple stations. And so, you know, that was interesting. Now, these, these were the older style TV sets. Yeah. Okay. Flash forward a few years later uh, in the room next to that one, which is in a corner and it's a bigger room. Two of our uh, two couples that we knew, this was at the Mothman Festival this time. They were staying in that room. They had a different type of TV. They had one of the more smart TVs. Mm -hmm. And so they, they were having trouble with the volume. The volume would go low and low, and then they would keep cranking it up. Then all of a sudden, it would start blasting. And they would do this a few times. And then all of a sudden, a what do you want to, whatever you want to call it, a soda can or a pop can, flew off the nightstand and hit the floor. Okay. So, so mm. my... My theory is, my half-baked theory is that if I brought some disembodied spirit back to that motel, he's still there flipping channels, and thank God did not come <laughs> home with me. But, but the, the point of this is I wasn't, I didn't stay in the present moment. I didn't analyze. And, you know, I've yeah. always wanted to be that person that if something weird happened, I wanted to be very aware and, uh, of what was going on so that I could, uh, you know, talk about it and analyze it. I think the, the thing is because even though you're interested in the research and read, is when you actually experience it yourself, it, that's when you really know whether you're going to sort of hold it together and deal with it or you're not, you know. And I think we are just caught in those moments. I would I always refer to I think as the rabbit headlight moments where you are just like, what the hell am I witnessing? Even if you are an experiencer who's had things happen it's still fairly rare i mean i know some people have experiences almost daily and all that sort of thing but i think real genuine experiences that are really anomalous only come across come off occur not that very often at all and when you find yourself actually in one that you can be caught out you know, even if you are an experienced researcher and you have the equipment with you just sort of dumbfound yourself this is real this is actually happening i think sometimes it's the way our brains process anomalous events they don't it almost doesn't register at first that something weird is going on and then maybe there's a fight or flight kick in that you don't want to be experiencing this strangeness because you don't know what's going to happen next because we always i mean i often talk in therapy where the, the big greatest fear we have is the fear of the unknown you know the, the known whatever it might be even if it's not particularly pleasant is preferable to the unknown because it's not quantifiable and having an unknown experience itself may cause you just to the, the higher function wants to switch off and the more instinctual preservation of self as in don't move it sees me it might get me kick in and you just don't think that way so it is fascinating though uh, one other uh, thing I want to mention about the uh, the uh, uh, Ben and Black movies, uh, the, uh, the the silly movies with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Will uh, Smith, they were actually inspired by a uh, graphic novel. The mm. graphic novel was inspired by the actual uh, MIB lore, if you will. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, it's it's interesting because the characters' names are J and K for John Keel. So at least there was that nod uh, to John uh, Keel. Yeah. Uh, the screenwriter for the for the Mothman Prophecies was Richard Haddam. Uh, you, you saw the, you know, I, I'm uh, one of the talking heads in the uh, Mothman Legacy. 
Oh, yes. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, and Richard Haddam is also there. So it's kind, kind of interesting to hear him and get his take on it. And uh, uh, the uh, another another aspect of the of the book, Mothman Prophecies, uh, Keel wasn't really that interested in writing it at, at the time. This is almost 10 <laughs> years after the event. You know, he had kind of he was done with Mothman. But as his editor said, OK, it's time to put together a book on the Mothman. So, of course, like I, I mentioned, they cut out half of it. Mm-hmm. And he told uh, Brent Rains, his biographer, that if he had told everything that happened, he could have easily filled six books. Sure. So that's uh, I, I would have loved to have had those other books. Absolutely. Yes. It just it's a fascinating thing how much must have been happening in a relatively small area in a relatively small space of time. You know. You obviously you live there now. Have there been any really recent reports of anything like that in the area? Uh, there, there have been a few. You know, I, I I'm not uh, up uh, versed on it. Uh, mm-hmm. Ron Latham, Ron Latham, no, right. he's he's a, he's a more recent uh, uh, had a more recent encounter. I, I'm always hesitant to, uh, you know, it's almost like uh, these Mothman sightings. And, and by the way. It, it had nothing to do with a moth. That was just a, a name that a creative copy editor uh, gave the the bird is what they called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Batman TV show was very popular at the time, so it was just simply a play on Batman. But yeah. Mothman stuck. Some of the other sightings are the Mothman per se. But mm-hmm. if if we are if we're on the track with John Keel, that perhaps some of these things emanate. From the same general source, and perhaps they just uh, uh, manifest differently. I mean, we, we know there are dozens of uh, stories of winged cryptids, uh, thunderbirds, the uh, what was it, the uh, Houston Batman back in the fifties, mm-hmm. the Wisconsin Man Bat, I think in the nineties. Yeah, so I, uh, I that's that's one thing I really have to I brush up on a bit. I, I, I confess that that's one of the questions people always ask me, and I'm a little fuzzy on uh, on some of the more recent sightings. But mm-hmm. it seems to me that at that, in that time period was when this thing really uh, manifested. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there are other aspects about it that are so weird. Uh, I tell people, they ask me, what was the Mothman? Well, Keel didn't know either. I call that kind of a paradox because uh, it... Uh, it didn't act like a biological animal completely. It Not would definitely. put its wings behind it, just take off straight like a helicopter. Didn't always flap its wings. Um, the wingspan, 10 feet, probably wasn't big enough to carry something that tall. I, I don't know. Um, they, uh, some people uh, told John Keel that we're close to it. They said that, uh, uh, that it's almost sounded like it, there was a humming noise suggesting machinery or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but also now there was another uh, researcher named uh, Franzen, the Swedish researcher that uh, uh, Kiel had corresponded with when he wrote uh, Operation Trojan Horse. And Franzen gave him all kinds of information on the mysterious ghost flyers in Sweden in the 1930s. And uh, he followed Kiel in a year or two later into the Point Pleasant area. He uh, encountered even more witnesses than Kiel had. And he found that many of them went home afterwards it had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena. So how do we reconcile all that stuff? Yes. Um, a poltergeist is something I've been doing a lot of research into recently. Because I do find, you know, almost I don't think they're ghosts in the sense of ghosts being ghosts. They are something else, a manifestation of psychokinetic energy that's coming from us. So maybe again, the idea of that anomalous experience itself is triggering off something within us. It's making us more attuned but perhaps also channeling the energy of something or making things occur. 
but I, it's one of those things that I'm going to be talking to somebody in a couple of months or two coming on the show as a guest who's very much involved in research around a place called uh, 30 East Drive up in um, Pontefract in, in Yorkshire. There is a lot of... Um, I to die for a second <laughs> completely where I was going with that. There's a lot of um, poltergeist activity as part of those phenomena of hauntings there. So I think that's something we can talk to him about as well because it's something he knows quite a bit about. But yeah, there's the the follow-on from a, an anomalous experience itself because people often do talk about coming back from ghost investigations feeling there's something has come home with them, has followed them home. And I do wonder if perhaps not something's followed them home as such, but they're attuned and they're tuning energy and it's tra- it's going through them and causing things to occur around them for a period of time because often they say it happens for a while and then it stops. So it's like it's you you've absorbed a certain em energy if you like and now it's exuding out of you and causing weird things to happen but after a while it tends to die down so i don't know again i'm speculating on the fly there so well i've always been fascinated by these areas that uh, where all this different these different types of phenomena take place um of course uh, point pleasant was one of them uh, a, a book that people don't know a lot about uh, valley of the skookum by sally shepherd wolford she's the mm-hmm. uh, mother of uh, Autumn Williams. Autumn Williams is a well-known Bigfoot researcher. And uh, they were uh, in Ording, Washington in uh, 73 to 76. And they were having classic Bigfoot experiences, uh, classic UFOs, orange balls of light chasing cars, uh, Bigfoots that were translucent. and even even some men in black showed up toward the end of this tale. <laughs> so uh, I mean, it was just 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 bizarre. And it was funny because she would she would hear these uh, the the Bigfoots chattering at night. She would call it sort of uh-huh. like rapid fire Chinese. And this is the same time period when Ron Moorhead I was, was say, yeah yes was out in the Sierra Nevadas yeah. actually getting recordings of this sort of a rapid fire Chinese, if you will. I still find those recordings give me the chills every time I listen to them. Yes. And I've recently rewatched all of Dave Politis's movies. Of course, Dave Politis has got a new one out, the, what is called the UFO Connection, which thankfully isn't just UFO based. It, it's it's still the high strangers phenomena. And, and so not, you've seen that? Yes, I have. I, I've not seen it yet. So, ah, uh, oh, what you was your definitely. what was your assessment of it? Very good. Again, he's um, he's trying. He's definitely moving more towards paranormal phenomenon explanation for these disappearances. More right. so than the, the first. I mean, the first one doesn't much. It's just kind of weird. Second right. one moves in that direction. This one's moved a little further in that direction. There is a couple of cases that I think you'll find very interesting. Where there's um, from the full details. A huntsman is out hunting el- elk. I think it was. And he comes across a group of six of them that are static, just not moving completely as if they're just frozen. And he sees this kind of cube of almost like a cube of glass. You can see through it, but it's like a kind of portal and gateway. And something comes through it and takes him through that. And that's an interesting one to listen. I won't say anymore, so I won't give away people who've not seen it, but that's a okay. very interesting story. Another one in which an animal appears to be levitated out of a forest and carried off by a UFO underneath it which is all very strange as well. It witnessed by about a dozen uh, Mexican workers who all saw the same strange occurrence. So he's bringing in the elements of craft transporting or moving things or people. But I I use the word craft in the loosest sense, because if a glass cube 
is a craft, it's a strange right. craft. So he's not, even though he's called the UFO connection, he's not necessarily going down the route of saying it's aliens from other planets. In fact, he, he says that quite clearly during it, but he's not saying that. But there are possible connections to some kind of vehicle movement of objects or people are playing a part. But yeah, again, lots of very interesting cases of very weird disappearances. So that's, it's definitely worth watching. Uh, he was very careful in the beginning about uh, saying what he thought it was. Yeah. And uh, the uh, I, I believe that he thought uh, uh, some of it was Bigfoot or some kind of creature. There there have been sightings of some hairy beast carrying off children sometimes. So, yeah. but he, he was very, uh, kept that close to the vest. And he said, I don't know, he said later, he said, I'm glad I didn't say what I thought it was in the beginning because, you know, it uh, would have been laughed at, but also he, he's been on record as saying he thinks there's probably more than one explanation to some of these things. You know, when, yeah. when you read the book, uh, A Sobering Coincidence, uh, he talks about uh, a lot of young people that leave bars in, in maybe a kind of an inebriated state, and then they vanish, and sometimes they can't even find them on the camera where they went. Yeah. And then yeah. they'll find the body in water, and it's been gone a month, but it's only been in water about three or four days. Yeah. And that is something that creeps me the hell out. Where were they all this time? Where were they being held? What was going on? And then... So the one case in the second movie that I often go back to, I forget the chap's name, but to cut the story short, he must trek through miles of snow with nothing on his feet because his shoes are found in one place, nowhere near where other things are found. But he's rucksack and flask was found open the flask is open on a rock literally standing there on a rock open with lid off with the cup beside it and this in a rucksack in an area that had been that was visible from a nearby farm that had been searched before and he disappeared months ago but it was like it had just been left there and that to me is the weirdest one of all of them so far i found that the single strangest one with the guy seemed to track for miles in the wrong direction even though the gps with him the GPS tracker, he was going miles in the wrong direction, left his shoes in a pristine state and would have carried on going for miles further without them. And then his stuff being found as if he'd just left it months after it vanished. And that, those ones are just the weirdest ones. Uh, he, uh, uh, he made the connection in one of his books to uh, uh, some elements of folklore. I mean, he talks about how, uh, you know, when, when it came to encounters with the fairies, you had to have uh, bring bread or something with with you so that you could uh, prevent them from taking you away. But what, but they, you'd be go out picking berries. You'd be in Boulder Fields or whatever. The same with uh, the missing 411 stuff. The, mm. se- several parallels. He talks about a young boy in New Finland that had uh, had carried over a lot of traditions from Europe, and uh, he had uh, he was picking berries. He vanished for a few days, and he came back in kind of a stupor and that those are the ones that are fascinating to me where uh, sometimes it's young children that can't explain mm-hmm. what happened to them but also sometimes it's adults that are befuddled and you can't uh, and they can't really describe you know they were gone maybe a few days one woman was talking about she had this impression that these men were chasing her in the woods and it's it's like they just uh, there's something that fogs their mind somehow Yes, as uh, again in the, the series of the movies, there's the one the young lad who was about five or six years old. He travelled about seven or eight miles yes. in one direction, was found lying face down in the snow but alive, 
And the spoken to the guy, and he has no memory of what happened at all, not even the vaguest clue what happened. He's met people who were involved in the search, and they've asked him, you know, what happened, and there's, I don't know. <laughs> he's, the, he's got the bits of the clothing left, but he's no memory at all how he got to where he got to. But yet he's gone through, like, thick forest of wooded areas and, you know, through barbed wire. I know. There's, no, there's some little scratches of him, and that's it. You think, how on earth did he get there? Yeah, it's just the strangest thing. But, yeah, City Blighted so far has avoided a definitive explanation of what's going on, but he's definitely leaning more and more towards a paranormal explanation without a doubt. Well, you're, you're kind of uh, forced into it. You know, you're, there's only uh, there's so many avenues you can go to before you, you have to come to those kinds of conclusions. Definitely. Definitely. Indeed. Well, I think we could perhaps consider wrapping up the evening up. We've been going for quite a while. <laughs> Well, you know, people are going to be just so happy to have us back. So I have so. a nice, a healthy dose of uh, Steve and Andy on, the, on true, the radio. So. The true absolute weirdness. And um, one little thing I just want to quickly mention, some people know I also do my The Cryptic Files, which has been my little channel of ghost videos I've been doing weekly up until sort of late summer this year, or ultimately. I temporarily stopped because I'm putting together the, the publishing project and finishing a book I've been writing, which is some, well, two books, as I say, one slightly behind where it should be another one is taking longer than it should have done so both are getting busier than i thought but i'm going to be bringing it back in the spring slightly different format i'm going to move away from lots of short clips of ghosty stuff i want to look for more our kind of really high strange experiences people have had and examine them in a little more detail so fewer sort of different different um, parts of each episode of the cryptic file but maybe like one or two files that look into a bit more detail on what's going on in some of these things it's that's the plan anyway whether we actually get around to doing it as a matter entirely so, but that is the plan yes and i meant to ask you about your youtube channel in the beginning so i'm glad you brought that up well andy this has been a blast tonight yes absolutely it's great to finally catch up properly as well i mean we've both had other things going on it kept us a bit busy but we were always determined to come back at some point we did a kind of a false hard term late last year <laughs> on the uk show panel uk radio show but um other things happened so we had, they had to be sorted out first but yes it's great to be back together well you know you, you really can't shake this i mean there there isn't uh, any way i could come up with another hobby or interest as fascinating or intense as this there were there were a few times back in the old days when uh you know there were a lot of infighting and different ufo groups and so forth and i'd get a little frustrated but then that siren call would bring me back every time and i'd <laughs> break out the books so i know the feeling i've often tried to escape the world of paranormal completely a number of times over the years for different reasons just got bored of it off something's happened i've just put me off but i always find myself dragged back in <laughs> can't escape it's just there and you want to be involved so yes yeah, so it's good to be back on the air as i say hopefully the more regular basis so i should be able to make most of the shows each month so sounds good take it from there but yes it's been absolutely wonderful evening talking to you again Stephen. i hope our audience have not been too bamboozled by us <laughs> you know, get on one i, I tend to sort of well, well on one they'll just send us those cards and letters they'll keep coming in the high strangeness factor was created by steve warren and andy mercer and is copyrighted by the paranormal uk radio network i want to thank our fearless leaders here at the network irene allen block mark johnson and andy mercer I also want to thank Andy as co-host and producer. Boy, that's a trifecta there for you. <laughs> for the show. And Brian Zeller, who composed the theme for The High Strangest Factor. You can also hear me weekly on the same network on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files as a correspondent. 
And I am Steve Ward, your humble host here at the High Strangeness Factor, a displaced Michigander deep in the Ohio, Ohio Valley in West by God, Virginia, a mere stone's throw from downtown Point Pleasant, home of the Mothman. Thank you for listening. We will see you again in a fortnight. Take care. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.